Well, good morning again. Hey, do we have any fall fans out there? Fans of fall? <laughs> yeah. I tell you, I, there are things that I love about every single one of our seasons, but fall is my absolute favorite. And I was reminded of this um, at our last farm church that we had. At farm church, we, we meet in this barn and on both ends of the barn, there are these doors that open and close. And so as you're facing the front at farm church, there's a cross in the middle. Both doors are open and they, especially this very last one that we had, they were opened to this beautiful meadow with these stunning trees all around of all kinds of different colors. And then there's this gorgeous blue sky and we've done some cool things in the past with some of our screens, but there is no way that you can create a screen that compares to, to that. God speaks through his creation. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. He, he speaks. He speaks through his creation. If you have your Bible with you, please open with me to a psalm that speaks to that so directly. It's Psalm 19. And I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4 here to start. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. One of the things that you're going to discover if you explore the first four verses of Psalm 19 in more depth is that these first four verses of Psalm 19 intentionally mirror Genesis 1. One of the ways that David does the mirroring, he's the author through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, one of the ways he does that is through the intentional use of a Hebrew term that we translate here as God. The term is Elohim. David had several different names for God that he could have used, but... He chooses the same term that Genesis 1 uses more than 30 times, Elohim. Elohim is, is a more general name for God, and it is meant to capture the essence of God who is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. Elohim says, let there be light, and there's light. Elohim says, let there be life, and there's life. Elohim says, let there be really cool, colorful trees, and there are. David reminds us in the first four verses of Psalm 19, the verses we just read, that Elohim still speaks through his great works, which are on display for everyone to see. All you need to do is look out your window on a beautiful fall day. It's there for all to see. Well, I'm excited to show you what David does with the rest of Psalm 19. We're going to do that, but first, let's do a quick recap of where we've been for the last six weeks. We're nearing the end of a, of a seven-part teaching series about the Word of God. We've been asking a lot of questions about why do we call the Bible God's Word. In week one of the series... We saw that comparing the Bible to other ancient documents is like comparing the screen that you're looking through right now to those open doors at Farm Church. No book has been published more times. No book has been translated into more languages. No book has been read by more people. And no book has had a bigger impact on the world stage than the Bible. That was week one. 
Here's a one-sentence summary from week two. This one-of-a-kind book has a one-of-a-kind backstory. The Bible is a collection of ancient documents. It was written by different authors from different centuries in different languages on different continents. The individual books that make up the Bible that we have today, these are the ones that were set aside as sacred very, very early. All right, let's move on to week three. In week three, we talked about how the Bible is good news. The Bible testifies to a good God who created the world. He's a good king who invites us into his kingdom. He's a good father who adopts wayward kids like you and me. He's a good shepherd who is willing to lay down his life for his flock. That was week three. In week four, we discussed this. The Bible is without equal in the ancient world when it comes to the quality and the quantity of the manuscript evidence. The Bible isn't just best in class in this regard. The Bible is in a class by itself. All right, that was week four. Last week, we focused on the authority of Scripture. Christianity's most influential leaders, Peter, Paul, Jesus himself, they believed that the Word of God was uniquely present in our biblical canon. The founders of our faith, people that we believe heard from God, they endorsed the Scriptures as the standard that we can measure everything else up and against. All right, that's where we've been. And if you've been with us, you might be thinking, okay, I'll give you the fact that the Bible is unique, that it's unlike any other ancient book or collection of books. You might be thinking, I'll give you that. But what about the whatabouts? What about those? For example, what about the passages that appear to defy natural laws? In the Bible, and I put these up on the screen here, the, the references where you can find these. What about a floating axe head? What about a talking donkey? What about the sun standing still? What about Jesus physically rising from the dead? So there's that whole category of whatabouts. And then there's this. What about the Bible's apparent mistakes and contradictions? Hey, if this is God's word, why would there be a mistake? Why would there be a contradiction? Put some examples of apparent contradictions, apparent mistakes too. Is a mustard seed really the smallest of all the seeds on the earth? Did Mark mistake one person for another? Did the author of Hebrews place the golden altar in the wrong place? Did the cleansing of the temple occur at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry or towards the end? If you're looking for contradictions, apparent contradictions, I should say, and apparent mistakes, I've given you some places to start and to take a look. On an even more significant level, if you're looking for reasons to dis dismiss the Bible, what about? What about the Bible's apparent doctrinal difficulties? How can Jesus both affirm Old Testament law and then declare all foods clean? Why are there conflicting reports regarding the empty tomb? Now that last one is especially problematic. If the integrity of the Jesus movement rises and falls on whether or not Jesus really rose from the grave, why do we appear to have conflicting testimonies from that day? How can a modern, educated, intelligent, truth-seeking person embrace a book like the Bible 
in the face of challenges like these? That's the question we're going to wrestle with this morning. Well, sometimes the answer is as simple as just take a closer look. If you have your Bible with you this morning, please open with me to Luke chapter 24, verse 1. Let me show you one of these apparent contradictions, how it's resolved by just taking a closer look. All right, here we go. Luke uh, 24, 1 says this, and it's referring to the resurrection account. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. All right, let me show you something that sometimes trips people up. You'll notice that the word they is used a couple times here. All right, now bookmark this and let's look at the resurrection account in John chapter 20, verse 1. Remember, Luke used the word they. But look at what, look here, John 1, uh, John 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, on the surface, this looks like a contradiction. Why? Because Luke uses the word they, meaning multiple people went to the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning. And then John, he just lists one. He just lists Mary Magdalene. So, is this a contradiction? Let's take a closer look. And all we need to do is read the very next verse in John chapter 20, verse 2. So she, referring to Mary Magdalene, ran uh, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. There is a tiny word tiny two-letter English word that is really easy to miss if you're reading quickly, and that is the word we. What does the word we imply? It implies that Mary Magdalene wasn't alone. Now, if you want to discredit the Bible, I want to tell you, don't start with the resurrection accounts. Even at low, that looks like it's going to really be easy to undermine the whole thing. The opposite actually happens. If you go to the resurrection accounts, you're going to have to account for and look at them to try to say these mismatching accounts prove that the Bible isn't true. You're going to have to account for what detectives call coherence with dissimilarity. Independent witnesses rarely, rarely include the exact same details and they almost never use the exact same words. Just talk to two people who have seen the same thing. Um, talk to them independently. If, in the case of the Bible, you've got four witnesses that all use the exact same words, the exact same testimony, a seasoned detective will assume that the witnesses got together ahead of time to make sure that their stories were all matchy-matchy. Check this out. Simon Greenleaf, the Harvard Law professor who wrote the standard study on what constitutes legal ev evidence, credited his own conversion to Christianity as having come from his careful examination of the gospel witness. Watch this. If anyone knew the characteristics of genuine eyewitness testimony, it was Greenleaf. He concluded that the four gospels, quote, would have been received in evidence in any court of justice without the slightest hesitation. All right. So, 
Sometimes finding an answer to your what about is as simple as what I just showed you here. Sometimes all it requires is just looking a little more closely at the Bible itself and what it actually says. But let's say you're reading the Bible or someone sends you a link to a video or you come across a book like the Da Vinci Code or a professor raises a question that you've never thought of before. And let's say when you're presented with this what about, you can't come up with any plausible response on your own. What do you do then? Well, first of all, there have never been more or better resources to help you find answers. As we've been saying throughout the series, we set up a page for you, emmanuel.church slash the word, where you can find great resources for people of all ages. Those resources are just the tip of the iceberg. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of resources out there. I brought some of my go-tos here um, with, with me just to give you some samples. These are books that are written by scientists and scholars and philosophers and professionals. If you have a whatabout, I will bet you a box of disposable face masks that there are a whole lot of really wise people who have wrestled with the same question that you're wrestling with. There's a lot of great information, a lot of great resources out there. A little detective work on your part may reveal that your problem might not be as problematic as it seems on the surface. For instance, your what about could be a prescriptive descriptive thing. The Bible contains a lot of examples of people behaving badly. It's possible that your what about comes from thinking that the Bible is prescribing a behavior that really is descriptive of something that person shouldn't have been doing. It's also possible that your what about could be a translation thing. If you're tripped up on the wording of a particular passage, keep in mind that the Bible was not written in English. Perhaps something was lost in translation, or at least the translation that you're looking at. Or perhaps your what about could be a forest trees thing. Sometimes what we need to do instead of zooming in is to actually zoom out. What is the main point that the author, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to make? Your what about could be a context thing. Context matters. And not just within a sentence, not just within a paragraph, not just within a book, but in this broader category of genre. The Bible contains poetry and prophecy and proverbs and parables and narratives and letters and apocalyptic writings. And each one of those different styles requires a different set of interpretive rules. Your what about could be that truth sometimes exists in tension or paradox. Sometimes the things that seem contradictory aren't contradictory. How many of you, show of hands wherever you are, how many of you believe in light? All right, hopefully you all believe in light. Well, why do you believe in something that is a contradiction? Did you know that light has paradoxical physical properties. It behaves both like a particle and a wave, but we still believe it. How many of you out there, show of hands, believe in jealousy? 
We believe in jealousy even though it can be a paradoxical emotion. Some forms of jealousy are a mixture of affection and anger or attraction and repulsion. There are those who aren't able to reconcile what the Bible teaches about love and justice, grace and truth, heaven and hell, election and choice. But just because we don't understand something doesn't mean that that something isn't true or can't be reconciled. All right, here's another. Your what about could be any of the things that I've said so far, any one of them, or it could be this. Your what about could be a where does it fall in the story thing. If you have trouble reconciling the Old Testament with the New Testament, you're not alone. And you might find this analogy by N.T. Wright helpful. When travelers sail across a vast ocean and finally arrive on the distant shore, they leave the ship behind and continue over land. Not because the ship was no good or because their voyage had been misguided, but precisely because both ship and voyage had accomplished their purpose. Christians must never forget the Jewish roots of our faith. However, ship-specific laws no longer define this new community of travelers. Not because the laws were bad, but because they were good laws with a specific purpose. It might be worth it to hit pause, read, reread that again. It was very well stated. And to be clear, I am not saying, I am not saying that nothing in the Old Testament applies to today. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that some of what we find in both the Old Testament and the New was written for specific people in a specific context. Okay, all this to say, all this to say, most of the problems that most people have with the Bible they're not all that problematic. It just takes a little detective work. Before we bring today's teaching to a close, I would be engaging in pastoral malpractice if I didn't bring this up. There are whatabouts that are hard to reconcile. I've still got some whatabouts that I haven't been able to come with a very um, con complete or convincing understanding of. So I still got some whatabouts, most people do. But here's the thing. If your whatabouts keep you from embracing the Bible as God's word, remember that now you've got a whole nother set of whatabouts that you've got to wrestle with if you want to have true deep peace. There's more than one set of whatabouts. You can write this in your notes if you'd like. And they are qualitatively different. So let's say you reject the Bible as God's word. Okay, then what about the origin, complexity, and diversity of life? Did your science teacher ever tell you about the huge leaps of faith that unassisted naturalism requires? What about Jesus of Nazareth? If you reject the Bible's testimony, you've got to account for a historical figure who divided history into two. What about the Jesus movement? What do you do with millions of intelligent, educated, credible witnesses who've testified to some pretty incredible things across generations, cultures, and continents? What about your own personal experience? Why is it that when you pray, you believe that your prayers should be heard? Why is it that you believe that there, if there is a God, 
he should right the world's wrongs. Where does that come from? And then, as we've been talking about throughout the series, what about this? What about this one-of-a-kind book? If you say, I can't trust the Bible because there are still a few unanswered questions that I have, now you've got a whole new set of questions that also need answering. I'm a person with a higher than normal need to understand. If my staff was with me right now, I'd be getting a lot of amens. I'd be getting from my parents, my teachers, pretty much everyone who knows me. They know that I need a lot of confidence before I can endorse a plan, before I can endorse something. Before, I'm such a fact checker. I wanna know if something is truly true. The more I've studied this book, the stronger I can endorse it. If you choose to place your faith in God's word, you're not putting your trust in something that was written by some guy who claimed to see Elvis riding a unicorn on his way to Roswell. These are the most thoroughly vetted words ever written. And as we bring today's teaching to a close, I want to circle back to some words from scripture, from that same Psalm that we opened with. I have read Psalm 19 and Genesis, Genesis 1 dozens of times. But this is the living word of God and it speaks to us fresh and new. These are some things I've never noticed before. If you remember, the first four verses of Psalm 19 parallel Genesis 1. Genesis 1 only uses the term Elohim for God. That's it. And it uses it 30 plus times. Every, and again, fact check me on this. In fact, it's fun to do that. Open up Genesis 1 and look, God, 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 God. Those are all Elohim. Now look what happens. If you keep reading, just page. Again, fact check me on this. Genesis 2, 4. A new name, a more personal name is introduced in Genesis 2. Whenever you see the word LORD in all caps, that's not the word name Elohim. That's the name Yahweh. As Genesis zooms in on the story of God walking with his people now, as we get into Genesis 2 and 3, the name Yahweh is introduced. Yahweh is the name that is connected, not simply with a God who spoke in a general way through creation to all people. That name is associated with a God who spoke very specifically to some folks in a very specific way, through his law, through his testimony, through his precepts, through his commandments. And he spoke words that bring life, words that keep us in right relationship with God and with one another. And so here's my point in all this. The same creator, Elohim, who reveals general truth about himself, he's also a personal God who wants to speak to you, who wants to speak to your situation, who's given us these words that can guide us through whatever comes our way. And those laws, those commandments, they're good. All right, let's see for ourselves. I've been talking about the last part of Psalm 19. Let's actually read it. Psalm 19, let's go verses seven through 10. And again, look at this. Look at, look, at, look at these words that describe his written word and then look at the name that's associated with them. 
The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Than gold. The same creator God who spoke autumn into existence. Oh, he's given us laws and testimonies and precepts and commandments that are good and they're right and they're more valuable than gold even if we can't fully understand them all, even if we still have questions. I want to show you one more verse before we close today. Verse 14 from the same psalm. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. These are the same words that at the top of every one of these messages that I do, I put for my own self to remember that I don't want to misguide. I don't want to mislead. I don't want to take things out of context as we have our time together here. That phrase, you know, so, so mostly when I've read that before and pretty much every week, every time I'm doing a message, I focused in on the, may the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable. I've never really zoomed in on that acceptable before. I did this week. That phrase, acceptable in your sight, it draws from language that we find in Leviticus 22.20 which requires a, quote, acceptable sacrifice to be a sacrifice that is without blemish. Here's the problem with that. The Word of God reveals that we've all broken Yahweh's laws and commandments. Even in our best moments, even in our best days, we've broken His laws, His good laws. And there's nothing that we can do on our part to bring a completely acceptable sacrifice. But here's the good news. In the fullness of time, the word that was God, the word that was with God in Genesis 1, in the fullness of time, the word became flesh. And in Jesus, God revealed so much more than he could reveal in thousands of sunrises and sunsets. I normally don't end a message with a pun, but this one's pretty good. You might want to write this down. Christianity begins with an invitation to place your faith in the Word. You can't understand the Word of God, Jesus, apart from the Word of God, Scriptures, or the Scriptures apart from Jesus. So this morning, I want to close our time together by inviting you to put your faith in both. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that you reveal yourself to all of us. There's not a place we can go on this planet where we can't see your glory. You are Elohim. You are the creator. You are the almighty. You are the one who spoke. And Father, we are so thankful that we have access to your written word, 
these specific words that were revealed through Yahweh, that were revealed through your son, that were passed on to us by, by people that you called to be your disciples. So Father, help us today to have enough, um, enough confidence that comes from exploring so many of the whatabouts that we can have peace with the ones that we've yet to understand. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are watching right now, that they could come away with a renewed faith in your Son and in your Word. This we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.